Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to SFF Addicts, a bi-weekly panel podcast featuring writers from fanfiaddict.com, authors, publishing professionals, bloggers, and more, where we come together to chat about science fiction and fantasy, as well as the occasional jaunt into the wider SFF industry. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and today's episode is my interview with author Andrea Stewart. She's the author of The Bone Chart Daughter and The Bone Chart Emperor, books one and two in the Drowning Empire series. The Bone Chart Emperor was also released today, so make sure to go get yourself a copy. It was a pleasure chatting with her, and we explore her wild long journey to get published, the origins of her Drowning Empire series, writing sequels and planning a trilogy, world-building, morally gray characters, and much, much more. All right, now on to my interview with Andrea Stewart. Here we go. Welcome, everybody, to another author interview on the podcast. And today I am very pleased to be joined by Andrea Stewart. She's the author of the Drowning Empire fantasy trilogy, including last year's The Bone Chart Daughter and the sequel, The Bone Chart Emperor, uh, which is out on November 9th via Orbit Books. The third and final book in the trilogy, The Bone Chart War, is currently awaiting release date, but perhaps we'll find out about that during this interview. Wink, wink. Welcome, Andrea. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, and it is November 23rd now, unfortunately. The release date has been pushed back two weeks. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Well, no worries. Um, before getting started, I just wanted to congratulate you on not only book two in the series, but also your second child. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're excited. I imagine so. And how are you doing? How's life been treating you? Um, it's been okay. Uh, it's it's a little bit strange just because, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic still, almost two years later. Um, and I published the first one during a pandemic. <laughs> so it still feels a little bit surreal. Um, although I am going to be doing some events this fall, which I'm excited about. Um, fully vaccinated and masked, of course. But um, I think that's going to be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Well, hopefully with book three, you can actually do some more non-pandemic-y type live events. Yeah, knock on wood. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) my whole thing was always wanting to, you know, have the the book cake and and stuff and like have a party, um, which (laughs) obviously haven't gotten around to doing that yet. So You can have, I I actually saw one author on Instagram recently. She had that with the book cake and all that kind of thing. But it was like a very, very intimate party. I was like, that actually Mm -hmm. sounds kind of nice, you know? It's so like I imagine her family or her friends made her made her the cake, but oh, that does sound yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, so before we dive into your work, um, I wanted to to get a little bit of um, background on your reading history and how you got introduced to SFF or literature as a whole. So if you want to dive into that a little bit, yeah, sure. I mean, I've always been a really big reader, a voracious reader. My uh, parents took us to the library every weekend. So I would go and check out a bunch of books and return the ones that I'd had from the previous week. Um, And I think my introduction to uh, science fiction and fantasy was actually through, um, well, first I read like some middle grade books, Um, you know, like Chronicles of Pridane. That was 
uh, favorite, you know, uh, the, the Narnia books, obviously that was a big one. Um, but to adult science fiction and fantasy, I found, um, my dad's, uh, iRobot book in the basement. (laughs) So I read that. That was like my first like adult science fiction and fantasy book. And then I got, um, into some of those chunky epic fantasies like uh wheel of time i think was the first one that was the first one that i really got into um and then there were there was uh, melanie ron's books i got into those ones uh you know it's funny i didn't start george r R. martin's books until later um but i did read like oh gosh what's his name terry goodkind i think Yeah, not not as big of a fan now, but um, that was like, yeah, I just devoured all of those, basically. I think a lot of people in hindsight realize like, oh, crap, some of these authors that I read as a kid, you know, who may have been influential at the time. It's like, oh, now it's pretty problematic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that's like the times uh, as well. It's just, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But how how was it for you? I mean, iRobot being one of those first sort of introductions into adult science fiction and fantasy that's a pretty complicated book in terms of its like style um and ideas how was that for you and like you know i imagine there was a bit of a an adrenaline rush just like finding this book of your dad's in the basement and then being like i'm gonna read this stuff yeah i mean i think it was a little bit more accessible than say the foundation series because it was a series of short stories um, and I found them so engaging, like that idea of these are the three laws of robotics and you look at them and at first glance you think, okay, well, those are pretty infallible. And then each story you read basically shows how they could go wrong or how you could get around these laws. Um, and I mean, that was a little bit of inspiration for uh, my bone chart magic in in the terms of like you have these things that you think like okay it's it's you can't break them but then there are always like ways around it because language itself is fallible that's actually something that i that i immediately thought when you were starting to talk about that it's like you created uh, a similar sort of not necessarily three specific laws that are doctrine or anything like that but you created these these laws for the constructs and the and the magic in your in your series. And I think that's really interesting. It's like, you know, these piecemeal magical robots that kind of function in a, in a similar way to, to robots. They are kind of like that. Yeah. Magical robots, <laughs> magical <laughs> flesh robots, <laughs> yeah. full of bare parts and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Cool. Well, actually we'll talk about that later. Cause I wanted to get into some of your approaches to uh, magic systems. Um, but before that, um, what was your sort of journey into becoming a fiction writer and and what made you decide that you wanted to pursue this? Um, so, I mean, at first it was definitely a side thing, like a hobby. Um, the whole turning point for me was when I was in fifth grade and we had to do this creative writing assignment and uh, my teacher really liked mine <laughs> and she actually used it as an example for later classes but I was like, oh, hey, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can like write stuff. So um, my dad was kind enough to set me up with his old spare computer in the basement, which was like 
this is going to age me, but <laughs> like, you know, black screen, green letters kind of thing, um, on which I wrote very bad, uh, black stallion fan fiction, basically. <laughs> so that's basically how it started. Um, and then I upgraded to, uh, a newer computer that was my dad's next old computer. <laughs> and like learned how, how to use WordPerfect on there. Um, and like wrote this like 35,000 word, like middle grade book, basically. Um, <laughs> and I just kept kind of going from there. I, I didn't think that I was going to be a writer at that point. Um, first off, I had a difficult time finishing things. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot except of for that one. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I finished that middle grade novel. Um, but it wasn't until like I was in college that I finished something else. And then also... You know, my parents are both immigrants and for them, it was like, you know, you go, you study math, you study science, you know, <laughs> writing is not a career choice. Like you, you don't want to be a starving child. artist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> basically. Um, so I did not study that in college. I studied economics, which was basically like the easiest thing I could get away with, you know, and still have my parents respect uh, <laughs> and support. So I did that. And I just kept writing books. Um, I did try to uh, query that first one that I finished in college um, and did not get representation. Uh, I finished another book and queried that one. And then while I was querying that one, I finished another one. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of um, a long journey. Because uh, I think at that point, after I graduated college, I was like, you know, I really want to make this a thing. I really want to do this. Um, so I got like a job that, you know, I could leave my work at work and actually write when I got home. Um, and then I just kept, <laughs> kept writing books, kept trying to get representation. And then once I got representation, I did have um, a couple books got on submission and die on sub, which is like the saddest thing ever because you're like, oh, I've just gotten this far. And you think that you're there. Like every step to you seems the most difficult step. Like finishing a book, you're like, well, that is the most difficult thing. If I can finish a book, then I've made it. But then you finish a book and then you're like, oh, crap, like I've got to query it. <laughs> and then that doesn't go well. Um and then, and then, then once you get, get an agent, agent, yeah, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I am like the top, the top of the top. I've got this now. And then you send your book out on submission and you're humbled once again. So, <laughs> so yeah, so it was, it was a long process. Uh, you know, I finished that book in college and then Bone Char Daughter was published when I was 38. So <laughs> I just, uh, just kept going, basically. A lot of time in the trenches, basically. Yeah, yeah. Out of curiosity, what are some of these earlier books about? If you if you don't mind divulging. Oh gosh. Uh, hmm. So the first, like that first middle grade novel, was basically there's this kingdom of magical animals, and then it's, it's there's this one animal that doesn't have any magic powers, of course. Uh, and there, uh, he's tasked to go and search for a new king for this kingdom because the old king was dying. And of course, like, you know, because this is a middle grade novel, it turns out that he's the one that's meant to be the new king and he gets powers on his <laughs> whole journey. That was like the first book that I ever wrote. Um, very, very typical kind of stuff. Uh, after that, I wrote like, oh, gosh, 
I wrote like a couple of urban fantasies because I was like, uh, I want to write something a little different. And then I also wrote some um, more epic fantasy. That's like kind of my bread and butter. I just love it. I've always loved it. Um, yeah, I mean, as for what they're about, I'm 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 terrible at this kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm the kind of person that even like you asked me about my current book, and I'm like, oh, can I like read the back cover to you because. <laughs> Trying me, me trying, I know, I know. <laughs> me trying to explain it. Uh, always, I always like go off on tangents, and then it doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were epic fantasy. Uh, had like you know a lot of your epic fantasy tropes in there, but didn't uh, <laughs> didn't hit. So, did you ever did you ever think about dabbling in science fiction or what? What kind of? Oh yeah, yeah. Fantasy? Um, I, I do, uh, I have published science fiction, short fiction, and then I have a science fiction book that I had started writing that's kind of like on the wayside right now because, um, I published a book in fantasy. (laughs) So once you're, once you're in that track, it's, um, it's better to keep going down that road uh, just because audiences don't tend to follow you from one genre to another. So you're kind of starting over. Um, I still want to, I still want to finish that one though. Cause I really like that idea, but. You could always publish science fiction with your middle initial. So you could be like Andrea Stewart and fantasy and Andrea G Stewart in science fiction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the plan. Like once I'm done having kids and I have like more time, <laughs> Like once, once my kids are like, once the youngest is like a year old, then I'm like, okay, I could probably write a couple books a year. But like right now it's like, oh, it's a little bit of a drag getting one out. So yeah. No, I mean, you're on a good track so far, but uh, what was the, you, you talked about kind of being humbled before with the different stages of, you know, finishing a book, querying, getting an agent, um, and then putting it out for submission. And sometimes it's just like, nope. Shit out of luck, nothing happens there. But what what did that process do to sort of like humble your perspective? And then how did you feel once you got the first book published? Oh gosh. Um <laughs> I think the first one that went out on submission and didn't sell was kind of a shock. Uh just because, you know, when you've gone that far, you feel like, oh yeah, like the next step has got to be easier. It has to be right. (laughs) Um, and I got like, I think, I don't even remember. I just, I think I just got radio silence on that one. Um, and that was humbling in the sense that like, you know, I'd seen other people, they got their agent and then they sold their book. And you always hear these stories, right? We're like, oh, like two weeks on submission and it sells. But I'd also read stories where people had something on submission for six months and it didn't sell yet, um, but did eventually. Um, so I kind of went down that Googling rabbit hole of like, how many other people has this happened to? Like, am I the only one? I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. So, you know, you start to feel a little bit better. Um, but it was kind of hard to pick myself up from that and be like, okay, well, I have to write another book because each book is a struggle. It's, it's rarely easy to sit down and write a book and finish it and revise it and go through that whole process. So, you know, I just kind of picked myself up and did it again. (laughs) Uh, and that one, um, needed quite a few structural revisions with my agent before it went out. 
And I thought at that point, okay, well, this is really good at this point. Surely this one, this is going to be it. Um, and then it didn't happen again. Like I got, um, I did get responses on that one. I got some nice rejections, but they were rejections. But it's pretty clear to me that like it wasn't going to sell like after um, the first few months. Like I was just not going to happen. So, uh, you know, the best advice that I had been given was when something is out in submission, so you're not like obsessing over it, just start writing something else. So, yeah, so I started another book. <laughs> Um, and by that time, uh, I was like, you know, this one may or may not sell whatever. Right. <laughs> I'll just like, I'll finish it. I'll send it to my agent. We'll go through revisions. We'll send it out. And then I'll just like start working on the next book. Um, and that was funny because I feel like, uh, that one, I, my agent was, I think very certain that it would sell. Um, so she like gave everybody like a, a deadline of like two weeks to read it, which I was like, well, that's startling for me, but, um, okay. You know, you're the agent, you know what you're doing. And then she asked me what I was working on next. And I was like, oh, well, I'm working on this like sci-fi over here. And she's like, oh, you're not working on book two. And I was like, well, no, I don't know if this one's <laughs> going to sell. So, so I think at that point I had kind of just given up, but, um, I had been doing this process like writing books and like you know making them as good as I could like for so long that I was just kind of like I'm just gonna keep doing this <laughs> so, it sounds like the submission very... process kind of like wore you down to the point of like a very nonchalant attitude it's like why yeah. would I write a sequel right right, now, right. <laughs> <laughs> why would I invest that like energy and emotional yeah. energy into something that I don't like actually think is going to happen at this point mm-hmm. um so it was extremely surprising to me when we started getting positive responses and I got my first offer that was basically not sleeping. Like, <laughs> So my agent is based in the UK and um, I would be up at like 3 a.m. and emailing her back and she's like, what are you doing awake at this time? I'm like, I'm not sleeping. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like right now? <laughs> like because the thing that I thought would never happen seems to be happening. Um so it who was cares, who cares about the time difference? Like I'm right. Oh now. my god. It was like the most exciting time of my life. Like if I could like Black Mirror, you know, record it and like relive it, <laughs> I think I would do that once a year just to remember what it was like. Uh <laughs> so that was super exciting for me. We got the first offer and I like um my husband and I went out for dinner and celebrated because I was like, at this point, it's going to be a book. It's going to be at this point. I got a written offer. It's, it's, it's happening. Um, and then we started getting more offers, um, which was very exciting for me. And then I got the preempt offer from orbit, um, and decided to go with that. I, I love orbit. I love their book. So it was, um, kind of a no brainer for me. Um, and then we celebrated again because it was enough for me to quit my day job. <laughs> so, yeah, it was super exciting. And then uh, getting to tell my boss that I was um, quitting, which I loved my I loved my job. Don't get me wrong. It was a great job. And uh, it's just not what I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. But they didn't even know that I was like writing. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like, I was like, well, first I have to explain. I actually like write on the side, like, you know, when I'm in a break room at lunch, I'm got my computer there. I'm like writing books. <laughs> and then um, I sold a book uh, and I'm leaving my job. 
now I'm going. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was, that was also like another moment. I was like, Oh my God, if I could relive that one too, it was like, it was amazing. Just like finally getting to live my dreams. So, so many, so many little victories along the way. It sounds like, a, yeah, I mean, all <laughs> the shit that you went through, all the submissions, no responses, rejections, et cetera. You know, you finally get to, you know, get these offers and then you celebrate and then yeah, you better offers was... and you celebrate again. Then you quit your job <laughs> and celebrate again. Yeah, we did that. We did celebrate again after my last day. <laughs> Um, I agreed to stay on for a while because I had um, a project that I was working on. I wanted to finish for them. But like after my last day, like we went out for ramen and it was amazing. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. And in terms of the bone shard daughter in particular, what was, um, did you feel that it was a little bit more special or did you kind of approach it with the same sort of attitude that you'd approached your previous projects? And what was the spark that sort of led to that book forming in your head? Well. I, you know, there was a part of me that I was like, this is different. Um, I think I figured a lot of stuff out because after the previous book had gone out in submission and failed to sell, I kind of just sat with it for a little bit and thought about, okay, what is the feedback that I've been getting from my agent? And um, what have I consistently not been doing like the best at? And how do I do better at it? So one of the things that she'd always noticed is that um, my beginnings were slow. So I always had to revise that. I always had to like cut a bunch of stuff and completely rewrite the beginning. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to fix that. <laughs> and then I would be reading like all these books that I'm like, okay, this like, what are they doing here that is working for me? Um, so I did kind of sit down and really analyze my work, other people's work, where I thought I was falling short and um, thought about how I could correct that in this next book. Uh, so I put a lot of that, those lessons that I learned um, into writing The Bone Shard Daughter. Um, and it went really quickly, uh, which <laughs> that's like a, a, a magic I will never be able to recapture either. Because um, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I know how to write a book now. I wrote this thing in like three months. and didn't need a lot of revisions. Um, writing second and third books is very different from writing first books. So I've got a lot of experience doing that now, writing first books, but, uh, still learning how to do second and third books. Um, but yeah, I mean, I felt like on some level that I had broken through some of some barriers that I had, you know, but, um, on the, another level, it's like you get so used to, uh, failing and you don't want to get your hopes up. (laughs) So, uh, it was definitely kind of like, you know, my friends were like, Oh, you know, this is going to be the one, like, it's going to happen. I'm like, you guys can hope for me. Um, because I'm going to be over here working on something else (laughs) because I don't want to, I don't want to get my hopes up and think that something's going to happen when it's not going to happen. Cause that's what I had done for the last two books thinking, think a part of me, at least thinking that, you know, this is it. Right. So I just kind of bypassed that thinking for this one. Well, with that in mind, I mean, you must have had a little bit of an inkling that like, okay, this could potentially become a sequel, maybe. But did you already have ideas for sequels for that book when you were Oh, yeah. And I guess you probably like planted some some, uh, launching points and clues throughout the first book. 
Yes, I knew it was going to be a trilogy. So when we shopped it around, um, my agent had me write up summaries of books two and books three. So I already knew uh, generally where things were going. Um, and I already knew like some of the reveals and things that were going to happen in book two and, and book three. Uh, so that's like one of the things that I really enjoy doing is kind of laying out clues for readers. So like if they wanted to go back and reread something, then they can pick up something new from it. Some of them are just like really dumb clues that like, <laughs> like they, you just kind of glaze over them if you're reading it the first time. The second time you'd be like, hmm, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> <laughs> but why, why do you think they're dumb? <laughs> like what? Oh, like they're just like kind of silly, like things that I do to entertain myself basically when I'm writing it. Um, some of them are a little bit more deliberate, like these are reader clues, but some of them are kind of things I just like. Just little throwaway things, basically. Internal jokes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. And what was the, um, after The Bone Char Daughter got published, what was the transition like into, okay, like, I know I'm writing a sequel. Um, I have the groundwork laid out in the first book. How did you take that and then approach the, the second one, The Bone Char Emperor? So I started working on that basically um, as soon as we sold it and I knew there's going to be a second book. Um, I had my little summary of what was happening in book two, which was basically like, I think like, uh, I don't know, two to three paragraphs. It wasn't very long. Um, so I had to do an outline. So of course, like I sat down, I did an outline. I'm like, yeah, this looks great. Uh, and started drafting. <laughs> um, did not go exactly the way that I planned. Uh, it was one of those things where I think structurally uh, it looked okay on the outline, but then when I got to certain points, I'm like, ooh, um, this is boring. There's like not enough happening here. So, uh, or I, it got repetitive. Like I think there were like way too many assassination attempts in my first. <laughs> <laughs> I went over like my outline with my friends and they're like, yeah, so. Uh, you need to uh, change that from an assassination attempt to something else because this is kind of repetitive. Um, so that was not as smooth a process as writing the first book. I had to like cut and rewrite about a third of it. So yeah, so it was a lot. And then considering how long the book is itself, um, it took a little while. So it was, it was a process, especially since, um, I found out I was pregnant in January. We sold the book in November. So basically I was like pregnant while I was writing this whole thing. <laughs> and so I was like on the couch, like falling asleep while I'm trying to draft it. <laughs> uh, and then like also, you know, the nausea and everything. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> not Just an experience I would recommend, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's funny. Cause like, I'm, I'm always like very positive and very gung ho, um, which I think carried me through this like very long process. Um, but I was like, Oh yeah, like pregnancy, it'll be fine. Like I'm, you know, I'm in shape. I'm like, got a lot of energy, but man, it just like completely knocked me over, just completely knocked me out. So it was it was a lot more of a struggle than I thought it would be, especially given that I thought at that point I knew how to write a book. Turns out you only know how to write like one book at a time. <laughs> You're just like yeah, figuring it each, out each time. Each book is different. It's its own beast in terms of, you know, the characters that you create, the plot that necessitates 
what those characters' actions are. So many different factors, you know. Yeah. And um, I imagine for you, it's kind of like you're birthing of two babies at the same time. Essentially, it's like you have this book. Yeah. And, like this, <laughs> and then you have an actual physical baby. You know, it must have been a yeah. I I, uh, I finished writing it. I had to ask for an extension um, of a couple months, and then I finished writing it um, postpartum, which was like the last part of it went a lot faster. <laughs> I got to say it's it's easier. It, it was easier to write postpartum with a baby that was had acid reflux and colics than it was to write while I was pregnant. So it happened. I got it done. Um, but it was an interesting experience. Uh, put it that way. So, so with all of this in mind, um, what's your take on the, the dreaded sophomore slump? And how are you sort of taking that into your approach with book three? Oh, gosh, I uh, that the whole sophomore slump thing, like, I feel like you carry that like an albatross around your neck while you're like drafting book two. Cause you're just thinking like, Oh my God, like, I don't want to be one of those people. I don't want to, you know, put out something that's subpar. Um, you've got like a year to write and polish this. I'm like, that should be fine. I did the first one in under a year, but then, you know, you're looking at different parameters for a second book, especially when you're writing a trilogy, like not only does it have to be, its own arc in the book, but it has to connect like book one and book three and be the middle part of like that overall arc. So there's like a lot of really interesting structural things going on there. Uh, I thought about the whole sophomore slump thing a lot. <laughs> um, and I'm still thinking about it. Um, thankfully, uh, reviews coming in have been very positive. I've been really, really grateful for that. Um, and I think I wrote a good book. <laughs> I'm always trying to, yeah, I'm always trying to write something better and, um, to keep the quality up. So like for me, trying to meet people's expectations is always a thing in the back of my mind. Like first, like, you know, as a kid, I'm always like trying to live up to my parents' expectations, which to be frank, were pretty lofty. So, I'm always stem, like, stem, stem, stem. I'm always like, yes, I'm always dreading like disappointing people. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's terrifying. I had several breakdowns over this <laughs> uh, and talked to my friends who were very reassuring, thankfully. Um, yeah. If you want to be a writer, definitely have friends who will like, pat you on the back and tell you it's all going to be okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think it, I think it came out all right. Um, I am now, you know, uh, less worried about book two and on to the anxiety over the last book. So it's yeah, a progression. It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting because the middle book, it's like, um, you know, you can write a book in three acts, you know, if you're going with a traditional Hollywood structure. But then you can also write a trilogy in three acts, and a lot of people tend to have a lot of difficulty with the with the middle. But in my mind, it's like the ending of a trilogy sounds way more daunting than than the middle act. It's like you can spice it up and and kind of create this good connective tissue, but if you flop at the very end, it's pretty. Um, people are gonna 
are going to berate you for that <laughs> for a long yeah. time. You know? I mean, just look at the end of Game of Thrones, right? We were all talking about it and then suddenly nobody wants to talk about it anymore. Um, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, forget about it. House of the Dragon looks pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, like, yeah, I was bitter over the last season of Game of Thrones, but the, you know, the next one, I'm like, ah, it's got dragons. It's a fantasy show. I'm, I'm basically all over it. So. <laughs> but for, for the Bone Shard War, do you have, um, more or less like a basic idea of how things are going to end or how you feel? Oh yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> so I drafted the whole thing. Uh, I didn't like it. Um, so I cracked the whole thing uh, <laughs> and I started writing it again I didn't like it so I scrapped that part and then I'm now on my third iteration and it's finally coming together the way that I want it to I knew how things were gonna go I knew um like the last third of it is very clear in my head but the moving pieces to get to that last third and the emotional struggles that they go through in order to get that cathartic ending. Uh, yeah, I was fiddling around with that and just throwing it away. <laughs> so um, it's been a struggle. It is finally coming together. And I think people will like this last book. Um, I, I think I write a good ending. <laughs> and I'm very pleased with how this is all going to end because I think that everything in the previous two books has been leading up to this. It's just um, getting the pieces into place, like where I want them. So I'm very particular. <laughs> so uh, as, as evidenced by me, like rewriting the thing like three times, um, I'm a fast writer, but uh, whether or not it lives up to my standards, is like another thing. So it's finally there. It's just, I've got to finish writing it now. So I'm drafting it. I'm trying to get it done ASAP. Uh, so we'll see. I don't know. I'm like over a hundred thousand words into my third rewrite and it should be like around the same as the second one, I think. So we'll see. I write fast, but we'll see. You write fast, but you take a long time to edit. <laughs> I think, that's, yeah. a good, I think that's, a pro that's probably a good problem to have in the sense that you know, you get your ideas out there. You sound like you have like a pretty good mix of plotting and pantsing. Um, but then I know some writers who it's like the revision process is really where everything comes together, everything hits home, and you can really tweak whatever aspects you need to in order to be like, cool, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. Everybody read it. And just like, whatever, this is it. <laughs> yeah, I don't let people read it until I'm like actually happy with it or at least at a stage where I feel like, you know, this isn't crap and this is like somewhere where I want it to be. So I'm getting there. It's definitely getting there. And like, I think like the last part of the book is going to be a really fast write because I've had it in my head for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm actually very curious how you're going to end the series because you, um, you have a habit of, putting some pretty hefty twists at the bottom at the end of these books so it's like book one there's some really heavy twists book two there's also some heavy twists and every time i finish the books i'm like fucking hell like <laughs> 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 it's like oh my god but then but then you do a nice job of ending it that way and then setting things up for the next book so i'm expecting 
a lot of twists for the end of book three, but at the same time, it's just like, you know, I have full faith in you to, to finish the series in a very, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It does. It does come to a close. So there's not going to be any like big things at the very end. (laughs) It's not going to be like, don't you dare put a cliffhanger in there. (laughs) (laughs) But what is, uh, I mean, speaking of twists, what's your, um, why did you want to use that? Because it's a really good tool in writing. Not a lot of authors um, utilize it to to great effect, but you do a good job of kind of like laying the clues throughout each book that readers can piece together and think like, oh, if like there's a twist coming, there's a, there's a reveal coming, um, then it adds like a nice level of tension to there um, throughout the narrative. So what for you is like the significance of a twist or how do you... How do you approach it? Do you have it like at the end of the book? I know that I'm going to reveal this. And so you kind of want to piece together certain things throughout. Well, I had in my head um, in the beginning, like this is the truth of the world and this is the truth of the history. Um, What the people who live in the world know is different than what the actual truth is. So I knew that throughout they would be discovering things about their history and about the world um, and about first their own personal history in some cases. Um, so I already like, so I knew like all of the stuff that's going to happen. Like I have in my head, like all the reveals are going to happen, but I don't always know like when it's going to happen. So sometimes I've had to like move it around a little bit. I'm like, ah, this is like too early or this is too late. Um, and I want to space it correctly. So that like, you know, we've got some that's, that are happening in book three, some that are happening in book two, some that's happening in book one, and all of them kind of cascade into one another. Um, so for me, I just like that idea of there being like this forgotten past and the way that people perceive things now is um, different from the way that they actually happened, which, you know, honestly is like how things are in real life, like the Victor writes history. Right. So, I mean, I just remember as a kid, like learning about Christopher Columbus and discovering America and like making friends with the native Americans and stuff, you know, it's like, you have like this whole different view and then you get older, you like get into high school and college and they're like, Hey, this is actually what happened. And it's like, it's like your own little real life twist. Right. I mean, um, so yeah, I mean, I've always been kind of fascinated by that, that kind of thing. And I also just like the feeling of being a reader and either like figuring out the twist, like right before it happens, because then you feel really smart or, um, being a little bit surprised by it. So I always try to aim for that. Like either you figure it out like right beforehand or like it hits you at like just the right time, you know? Um, so yeah, it's kind of like a combination of those two things. It's just like, I feel like it reflects real life. And I also, uh, just like that feeling of like surprise and, Oh no, like this changes everything. So, yeah. And it also works as a really good tool for pacing. I mean, like you said, you had to, to move things around in order to, to have things land at just the right time. And I think that works in terms of the pacing of your books, you know? And I also really like what you mentioned about sort of um, forgotten history. And that segues really nicely into what I wanted to ask you just about world building and research and how you went about um, creating the world of the drowning empire. So like what, what role, you know, you mentioned Christopher Columbus, 
as an example of like, I guess, um, yeah, like Victor's writing history, but also, uh, kind of plays into this idea of like revisionist history as mm-hmm. well. So like, what does the real world, um, offer you in terms of, um, inspiration for the world and the world building that you put into these books? So, um, I'm a kind of haphazard researcher. When I have an idea for a book, um, I go to the library and I check out a bunch of books that I feel like are somewhat related and just kind of like flip through those, do a bunch of reading and do my best to kind of absorb it. I don't really take a lot of notes. Sometimes I do if I find like a particularly interesting fact. Um, but then I kind of just write things from there. I, I, I wish I could say I was better at researching, but I'm kind of the person that like clicks on like Wikipedia articles. And like the next thing I know, I'm like reading about something completely unrelated. (laughs) So I'm a very distracted researcher. Uh, so I don't know how like effective I am at that. I, I think like when I'm world building, I usually will start out with a few like basic assumptions and kind of follow those through as far as like, well, what does that imply about how these people are going to live then? Like, for example, you know, in the drowning empire, these islands migrate, they move around. So what does that mean for their navigation? Well, they've got to have, you know, a special class of people that um, learn how to navigate and do all these calculations. They know like which direction to head to, so they're actually going to get to their destination. Um, so it's kind of like things like that, where I just take the those first few basic assumptions and I kind of just build off of that and think about how it would affect people in their everyday lives. Um, I also, for the Drowning Empire series, I wanted to kind of bring in some of my background. Um, my mom is Chinese, uh, and I grew up around a lot of my mom's family. So I wanted to bring in like, some of those like cultural expectations, like um, in my family, it's like you, you're always trying to meet your parents' like expectations and they're always like, oh, like, you know, my mom's, I remember like I brought home like an A on a test that I was very excited about and she's like, why not an A plus, right? <laughs> so, so I, you know, I brought in a little bit of that too with um, Lynn and her father where she's constantly trying to please them because there was a cultural expectation here that you are like trying to meet your parents' expectations and like you owe them that. Um, so that and like a lot of like the food and everything, um, making and eating food was like a big thing in my family. Uh, like, you know, dumplings, you'd always like sit all together and then everybody's like doing their part. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I kind of drew on some of my own personal background and uh, just like... <laughs> I read like travel books too when I was just trying to think about um, what kind of like sensations and like smells and um, little details I wanted to bring in. Um, yeah, but like I said, I, I'm not a very organized researcher. No, but it's okay. I think you have um, probably approached that a lot of writers have at this point, especially now that we have the internet and it's kind of this just clusterfuck of information and access to whatever you want to read and go down a rabbit hole on Wikipedia, but I think you have a nice balance between, um, sort of, uh, osmosis in terms of like what you're absorbing through the research that you're 
um, that you're doing, but also through your own story, your own culture, um, and then infusing that with sort of fresh ideas like migrating, floating islands and, and things like that. Because it does feel really rich in the sense that um, I can't remember. Like, I don't know if it ever specifically says how many islands are in this in this empire. But it there does are a lot. not specifically say. <laughs> <laughs> but every island has a unique aspect to it, um, which I really appreciate. And you kind of get that through the small details, like you mentioned, uh, the food that people are eating, the smells that people um, sort of like breathe in while they're walking through the street, um, the way that people are dressed, um, the way that people interact, how many street urchins and, and homeless people are, are there? Like, what do they produce? You know, each island produces different things. So it's like, oh, this one's really vital to the empire because it produces caro nuts. Or this one's really important because it has one of the biggest uh, Whitstone mines and things like that. Um, so I, I appreciated your, uh, I wouldn't say it was like super, super in-depth, you know, to the point where there's a ton of info dumping, but you infused little details that enriched the world building in, in really nice ways. Yeah, I did read a lot about sailing um, because I wanted to get it right and then I didn't use any of it. So <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, well, you really do, as soon as you start getting into depth about some things, like, you know, you're going to get something wrong. So, <laughs> or somebody's going to have some kind of objection, right? Um, yeah, it's always difficult. But it's, it's the approach of um, using sufficient detail to conjure believability in the reader you know and the more detail you put in the less believable it's going to be for a reader because they have there's more um there's more information and there's more it's more likely that they'll trip up or you've tripped up in in what you've put in there you know so i think it's nice it's like yeah. you have certain aspects where it's like oh this character is really used to being on the sea and so um you know maybe it's like when they sleep on dry land, it's a bit uncomfortable for them because there's not the rocking of the ocean to lull them to sleep, you know, or, um, some people it's like they get wobbly legs when they're, when they're on a boat or other people is like, they've never been on a boat ever, you know? And then I, I really like the, the, the implementation of Whitstone. I'm curious, like why, you, why you chose this aspect of like, um, a mineral that, that can be mined as this like vital um, resource that's pretty much like the controlling point of the entire empire. You know? Well, there's a reason. And I'm, that's about all I'm going to say. It's coming in book three. <laughs> <About that. laughs> yeah. Coming in book three. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like it's like not dissimilar to our dependence on like oil. Right. I mean, like <laughs> it, it facilitates trade and they're all used to using it and um you basically need it in order to make the empire run at this point mm -hmm. and also as a i really liked it. it's kind of like in my head i was imagining mario kart how they have the little um the little like speed strips where you drive over and just get, like, <laughs> like a little for mushroom it. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so it's like oh shit whitstone is like that it's just like you light that stuff on fire and you just fly <laughs> yeah basically Oh man. And, um, I also wanted to get into the, to the characters of the book because you have, um, you have a lot of characters, but then you also have a pretty core cast who act as like the POV characters. 
And then through book one and into book two, they have a nice um, personal development, relationships develop, uh, people grow. And I wanted to ask you, um, what does it mean to you to have such character-focused books? Because the story as it exists is what it is because of the characters. So for you, what is the importance of having uh, characters be so vital to this book and then also having them grow throughout the narratives? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, for me anyways, um, I, I really enjoy books that have, you know, great world building and great plot, but I never feel fully invested unless I can relate to the characters and can feel like um, I understand them. Um, I, I mean, I've read some really, my brother keeps recommending me these books where he's like, this is a really cool concept. And I read it and I'm like, I don't know what I just read because <laughs> there was like nobody that I could connect to there. So I, I kind of just like went all over and just went over my head. Um, I, I do feel like if you have uh, characters who the reader can connect with and can see things through their eyes and understand the way that they're thinking and why that it is a lot easier to introduce like um, concepts that might otherwise feel a lot more foreign and difficult to grasp. Um, So that's like a big, a big thing for me is that I want to have characters that the reader can connect with and kind of see the world through their eyes so that things like migrating islands and Whitstone and like creatures like Messy don't like just kind of go over your head and feel like you, you finish reading it and you're like, I don't know what I just read, you know, <laughs> or you just forget it two seconds later. I feel like if you have characters that you can connect with emotionally, then all of those things kind of stick better. Yeah. It's like the um, contextual glue for everything else. Yes. Definitely. In the case of, in the case of um, world building, like the culture, it feels a little um, a little more subtle when it's coming through the eyes of a character who's experiencing it. You know, like you say, it's like something could just be like weird and it flies over your head. But in this case, it's like, no, it makes sense just from the from the context of this character's perspective, um, what they've experienced, what you've read having happened to them up, up until that point. Um, and I think a lot of it works because, um, you have, let's say there's like, a a gradient of moral, uh, of moral aptitude for each person, you know, I think it really works because so many of the characters fluctuate in terms of their moral compass. Um, you have Jovis who's, you know, he's a smuggler and he's really, uh, cocky and his moral compass goes all over the place as he becomes enveloped in different situations with different people, different, um, sides of the, of the, of the battle basically. And so it's really interesting to see how these different characters are approaching situations morally. Um, I feel like that's like how things are for us every day in real life yeah, yeah like i'll read yeah. one article where i'm like well that just makes me angry and you know and then i like go more in depth and i'm like well wait actually there's like a lot more nuance here and i i kind of feel like that's how it is in real life we just kind of fluctuate just depending on new information which i don't think is a bad thing no no i don't think it's a bad thing at all and i think it um enriches the story you know 
builds on all the other aspects and then gives you these characters who are complex and engaging in their own particular ways. And it's not necessarily like, um, they're going to make every decision based on the, what would a hero do or some crap like that, you know? Right. (laughs) Um, So from your, from your perspective, what does, um, moral complexity offer, offer the story and how are you kind of approaching that from book one to two to three in terms of how you, um, how you've laid out the narrative and, and the arcs of each character? Oh gosh, that's a difficult question. I think, um, in book one, like the choices are a lot more simple as far as, um, whether something is, um, moral or not. (laughs) And then I think as the books go along, things get a lot more complicated because I think my characters, you know, they're always trying to do the right thing, but what that actually means to everybody is different. Um, especially given that, you know, this is an empire that's kind of on the brink of revolution. There are a lot of people that are dissatisfied with the way things are and they want things to change. And I ask the question a lot, like, is it possible to change things without like intensely damaging innocent people? (laughs) And uh, So I feel like in book one, it's like, things are a lot more clear as far as like, what is right and what is wrong and what should we be doing here? And then, you know, um, and I'm trying to avoid spoilers, (laughs) right? But in book two, Go read where, the book so you know what we're talking about. <laughs> where you think like, well, if only I had like this power, I would set things right. Like, you know, this like, I think a lot of people think that kind of thing to themselves. Like, well, if I were president, right. Or if I were world dictator, like I would do these things and like, I would make things better and everyone would be happy. And you know, my characters, as they grow throughout the books and as they do gain more power, they realize that it's not actually that simple and what will help one person sometimes will make somebody else unhappy. So like, what, what do you do there? Like, what is the right choice to make? Because they are trying to make the right choices. Like I, I always tell people my characters are, are just trying their best. (laughs) So, so yeah, I mean, a lot of this is kind of questions that I've asked myself too. um, Because like I noticed, you know, just in real life where, um, you think like, well, if only people would do this thing, then like everything would be better. But then you start reading more into an issue and you realize there's so many complexities and it's just not as simple as it appears on the surface. Yeah. And through the, the political machinations of this, of this empire, as people get into positions of power, like you say, they realize that, man, it's, so complicated because there are so many, um, chain reactions that, you know, one character, um, I can't remember how to pronounce, I guess it's like Falu. Oh, Falu. Yeah. 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 So Falu, she's very, um, morally righteous, but she's also impulsive. And so some of the decisions that she makes, even though she's in a position of power by the second book, she, um, has like you say the right intention she's trying her best but she's impulsively makes a call given her position that has repercussions that she did not foresee and so right the the result of that is is really interesting from a narrative perspective it creates conflict and and creates tension um but it's like real life it's like 
oh yeah, you could so easily say I would do such and such thing, but you don't know the complexities of anything. You don't know the complexities right. of a job or a position or another person's um, life. So it's really difficult to say, uh, I can do this better than so-and-so. It's like, could you, could you really, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of tough decisions in real life, unfortunately. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious, like at this point, you know, you've finished two books and you're already working on the third. How, how attached are you to the characters that you've created knowing that their stories are going to come to an end and you're going to be moving on to another project? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be sad to finish the third book because it does draw everything to a close. And I know people have asked if there are going to be more books in that universe. And I don't know that there are. Maybe someday I'll think of an idea that really draws me. Um, But for these characters, it's definitely like the end of the road. So that's going to be a little bit sad. Um, At the same time, like I'm used to (laughs) things like ending prematurely. Um, before I was ready to let go of the characters. Um, and I'm always like excited to start something new. So it'll be sad, but also interesting to get into the heads of um, the characters of my next series and um, their difficulties and their problems. So, so yeah, it's a mixed bag. A bittersweet transition from yeah. people, people like, you know to your new friends graduating high school right you're like it's like i'm really familiar with it and i'm comfortable there but then you know hopefully hopefully you're ready to take on the challenge of meeting new people yeah yeah and i wanted to i wanted to um transition into the magic and the creatures uh within the series you know i really love it you have these two uh forms of magic you have the bone shard etching i guess i guess you would call it um where the the wielder of of this etching tool etches uh um little engravings or i'm saying etching way too many times they etch into bone shards and then they place those bone shards into into artificial constructs that then uh come to life and carry out certain commands and then you also have the more elemental system based on um bonding with a magical creature and uh, that plays into the history of of the world and this race called the Alanga, I think they're called, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the former is what you could call the hard magic system. And the latter, I would say, is more like a softer magic system. Yeah. And the bone chart etching is actually in my head. It's like this really uh, brutal form of programming language. Yes, that's um, what I was like thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> So why did you take this um, dual magic system approach to have both a hard magic system and a soft magic system? Um, I mean, I like both. I really enjoy um, reading about hard magic systems where there is a logic to it and there are very clear parameters. But I also like magic that's a little bit more mm, magical. (laughs) Unexplainable, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's more reasoning behind it too. Like you'll like learn a little bit more about what's going on as the books go on. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I think starting out, I just knew that I wanted to kind of have a little bit of both. I don't like to choose. I just 
put both things in there, which is why I like third person point of view and first point of view. I'm like, I like them both. Let's just do all of it. Why not? <laughs> How did you decide which characters to do in first person and which in, in third? Well, it's just Lynn and Jovis that are in first person, and they're kind of the um, main, main characters as far as um, their perspective. So I wanted to have those two, and everything else kind of like revolves around them. Um, and then the third person perspectives are a little bit more peripheral. Um, they have a little bit less page time, and um, more kind of like they interact more with like Lynn and Jovis. It's like, that's kind of like the decision-making process I had behind that. Um, And then like, kind of like Lynn is like a top down, like look at things where she's like, you know, in the palace and she's the emperor's daughter. And then Jovis is kind of like bottom up where he's, you know, smuggler. He's like one of the common people. Um, So I kind of like felt like you get like, a good view of what's going on in the empire from these point of views. Yeah. And I think, um, each of them, um, builds their relationship with, uh, the magic system in different ways. Um, Lynn, because she has a more personal, uh, stake at stake in the story with, uh, bone shard magic and her father who, um, is the emperor. And then Jovis, who's kind of like, like you say, bottom up, but he, um, he comes to power. He finds power, stumbles across it because he's a very accidental character in a lot of ways. Whereas Lynn is much more purposeful and says like, this is something that exists in my world. And in order for me to, um, attain the position that I want, I have to go through this like systematic approach to, um, to bone chart etching. And I think it's kind of cool. It's like Lynn's personality is reflective of that magic and Jovis's personality is more reflective of, of the elemental uh, magic. Yeah. I mean, um, Jovis so is really purposeful. Cool. He's purposeful in running away from it. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so he's accidental in some ways, but very, but very purposeful in terms of just avoiding um, responsibility. <laughs> yes, definitely. And um, on the topic of magic, um, I want to I want to dive a little bit into Mephi because he's just my favorite and I love him. Uh, he's so adorable and and um, there's actually some really cool merch uh, for anyone interested for um, for the second book where it has like a Mephi uh, painting on the side of a mug and then it has some other stuff. Oh yeah, there's um, like a mug and stickers and stuff like that yeah so where and how did the desire to implement animal companions come about because you did mention earlier uh the middle grade book that you wrote was all about animals um oh yeah so i'm curious like yeah did that come into play well i joke not joke that the reason that my first book was all animals is because i didn't know how to relate to people um i was a very shy kid so uh, i didn't have like a terrible lot of friends um and i always wanted a pet uh, which my mom was like, no, <laughs> uh, we had like a snake at one point and like lizards, but I really wanted like, you know, a cat or a dog, but I was like, my mom was absolutely not on that. It wasn't until I went to college and like got my own place that I was able to get a cat. Um, so maybe it was like some just like latent, like, Oh, like I've been denied this. 
um, <laughs> some Rep- of that. And just then, like repressed access to furry animals. <laughs> yeah. And then just like, I just really, it's an aspect that I really enjoy from a lot of fantasy novels is the magical animal companion. Um, I like ripped through the Pern novels when I was a kid. It's like, like a magical telepathic dragon. Like, yes, please. Um, and then just like, you know, there's the, uh, Robin McKinley's like blue sword where she's got like this amazing horse and like this cool cat. Uh, I just like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many books that I had read that had like a magical animal companion that I really enjoyed that aspect. And I knew like when I wrote this book that I wanted to have that as part of it. Um, because like, if you're going to write, <laughs> if you're going to write a book, why not like throw everything that you love into it? Right. So, um, that was something that I just really wanted to do for this one. Yeah. But I think you did a good job of also incorporating the animal companions into the, the history and the world building of the novel. It's like, there's a lot of stuff that still hasn't been revealed about these animal companions. So they create this, this mystery in and of themselves, which I think worked very well. Yeah. I mean, it has to make sense, but I still want to put it in there. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of old fantasy, they included animal companions without much context. So it's just like this animal companion is there because it's there, you know, it's like, Oh, so-and-so mm-hmm. has a, has an Eagle. And it's like, cool. Why? <laughs> <laughs> but it's still <so> cool. <laughs> it's still really cool. But it's like, why do you have an Eagle? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to touch on, uh, cause we were speaking, uh, earlier in the week, um, that you're also an artist. Um, you know, you have some original paintings and illustrations and if anyone's interested, go check out Andrea's website. Um, cause she has some stuff on display over there. Uh, when did you start making art and how did your artistic skills sort of like that approach to, to painting and, and all that, how did that translate into the writing process itself? Um, well, I actually started painting before, um, I started writing. So I've been doing that forever. Um, and that was like the thing that I had wanted to do before I wanted to be a writer, which my parents were like, definitely not. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, um, I, it was just something that I had done like all through like grade school, I took art classes, like whenever I could, um, And then when I got older, of course, like there's like digital painting and a lot of online tutorials and communities for that. So that was really nice. Um, And then when I was in college, like basically I did illustration work to kind of um, pay for like some living expenses and just like for fun money, right? (laughs) Because, you know, going to college, like you're always poor, right? (laughs) So so yeah, so at least I could like... Yeah, it's like at least like go out like sometimes. Um, yeah, so it's just basically been something that I had been doing forever. Um, I don't have as much time now. It's like one of those things that I'm always like, ah, someday I'm going to just write and paint and bake. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't have as much time right now. Right now it's like all writing and all the peripherals for that. And then, you know, taking care of the kid and things like that. But I I do um, hope to get back to it more someday. I think kids complicates the the matter because, um, writing is something that you, I don't know, this is for me personally, like writing is something that I can, I can sort of, um, 
do within like more condensed periods of time. Whereas painting or drawing is something that requires, I call it like my, my just like creative zone out where I just have nothing else going on in my mind. Just kind of like absorbed completely in this thing. Um, do you find that there are like explicit differences between the two creative practices or any similarities? Oh, between painting and writing? And writing. Oh, yeah. Like, I definitely zone out for both of those. Um, painting, I feel like, takes, like, less active thought. Um, it's something where I'll often have, like, a television show or something playing in the background that I'm, like, halfway paying attention to or listening to an audiobook. So I feel like I can kind of do a lot at the same time, I can multitask a little bit more. but. Writing is definitely like I've, I've got to be a hundred percent concentrated, especially, you know, with revising that's <laughs> like, I can dash <laughs> off. Like I, I actually ended up writing quite a bit of bone shard daughter on my phone. Like when I was just like waiting in line or in the car uh, as a passenger, not when I'm <laughs> driving. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I would write that um, like just on my phone on like uh, Google docs or Scrivener. Um, I cannot revise like that. Like you, it's not like, I think revising is not something that can be done in like 10 or 15 minute increments. It doesn't feel like to me. It's like, you've got to sit down and like actually really dig into it because you're trying to hold all these things in your head at the same time. And then if something distracts you, then like, you know, Oh no, you've dropped all those balls that you're juggling. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's tough. A much more intensive process where it's like, no, I need full focus. Like nothing else. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like painting is like a different kind of focus. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, like you said, this, like this creative zone out that I have, um, podcast was actually like the, the main thing that I would just throw on or, or I guess you could call it like throwaway TV where it's not something that I have to be like, so invested in, in terms of like actually looking at it or yeah. Yeah. You know? It's like, Oh cool. I'm going to watch like, a Korean, uh, well, no, I'm not watching a Korean thing because that has something You got to read subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> In my head, I was just like, I'm just going to watch like a, like a cheesy Korean soap opera, but it's like, no, I need something that I can just listen to. And it's like in the background, whatever. Um, so I think it makes total sense that, that, um, I mean, it sounds like you have a pretty similar, uh, experience with writing versus, versus art, but revision is not something that I've done so much of and you know with a kid it can it can be pretty complicated like do you feel like you have to um speak with your partner and be like can i please just have like this block of time where i have zero interruptions in order to carry that out well i've just given up working on the weekends and then um i have childcare during the day thankfully so i can actually like sit down and concentrate um although it's like i'm still juggling with like food prep. Cause I'm the one that like makes dinner and stuff. My husband does not know how to cook. Um, and he does the cleaning, <laughs> but, but yeah, so it's like, I, I don't end the work day the, like at the same time that I would at like my regular job, like I've got to end it. And then I've got to like do, you know, grocery shopping and like errands. So it is like, it's a lot harder right now than I think it's going to be in the future when like the kids are in school. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. It'll be a little bit more 
like study and yeah. No, I mean, um, now that you've got a second kid coming, it's like you've put out this whole trilogy while being pregnant or raising a kid. And so it's kind of, uh, I don't know. It sounds like this beautiful, um, melding of like your, your family and your creativity all coming together. Oh, it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> it feels like, <laughs> feels like a hectic mess. Um, but that's okay. Like I'll get through it and it'll get easier. Um, I, like I said before, I'm like, just like, let's just get this over with the hard part and then it'll be easier in the future. Yeah. And since you have uh, book three coming out next year, um, likely in the fall, I'm imagining. Um, yeah, that's the plan. Yeah. Fingers crossed. After that, um, do you feel like you, you want to take a break or, or maybe like write some short stories or you've already got like a clear plan in mind in terms of, Oh uh, no, I've, I've already got like, book. yeah, I have another, I have another series I want to work on. Um, so I've already like pitched it to my agent, but I got to like come up with some kind of clear, like I got to write some stuff up a little bit. Cause like when I pitched it to my agent, it was like, here's my ideas, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. Um, but I'm excited about that one. Um, so I'm basically, I'm probably going to like just take like a short amount of time off just to recoup. Um, because it's been like a really tough last couple of years. Um, but after that, I really want to dive into that. I'm very excited about it. It's got like some fun characters and some really neat, like world stuff that I had been like wanting to do things with. So yeah. And then some fun magic system too. Of course. Of course. Cool. I'm really excited to see, uh, what you got coming, but first we'll, we'll focus on book three and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious how this this series is going to close out because it's it's one that I've uh I started reading this year and just really enjoyed. Um and I'm curious just to close out, what are you currently reading or watching or listening to that you can recommend to people? Oh, let me see. Um Well, I just finished watching Squid Game. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I don't know do i recommend it because i feel like everybody's watched it already um <laughs> and then like uh the great british breaking show i put on while i was like doing a bunch of signing uh which i would definitely recommend that's super relaxing it's very different from squid game so maybe after you watch squid game go and watch that um reading uh let me see recently i read the stardust thief um by chelsea abdullah but that's not coming out for a while um, but it's very good. I highly recommend it. It like reads like you're reading like some really cool dream that you had and you don't want to wake up from. Um, one that I read recently that is coming out soon is Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan. That one is amazing. Like it's so engrossing. Like I, it was one of those books where I'm like, I'm going to pick this up and I'm going to read a few pages and then I'm going to go back to what I was doing. And I <laughs> just like tore through like the whole thing in one sitting. So yeah, if you want to like, just feel like completely immersed in this really cool world and characters, then definitely. I, I, was, that is, I was sold on that one just by the cover alone. It's oh my God. It's gorgeous. But that's coming out in January. So Nice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Andrea.
And there we have it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Andrea Stewart. A quick note, Andrea cut out right at the end of our interview. Thankfully, it happened then and not earlier. But she wasn't able to tell you, dear listener, where you can find her on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, she is at Andrea G. Stewart, and I'll have links to those in the show notes. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice, and share us with your friends. It helps a lot, and we greatly appreciate it. You can follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram at SFF Addicts Pod for updates and more, or shoot us an email at sffaddictspod at gmail.com. You can also follow me, Adrian M. Gibson, on Twitter or Instagram at Adrian M. Gibson. SFF Addicts is part of fanfiatic.com, so make sure to check us out there for the latest in book reviews, essays, and all things sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the full episode archive for the podcast. All music comes courtesy of the talented Astronauts. Check them out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash S-T-R-O-N-O-Z. All links for the episode are also available in the show notes. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts. <laughs>